Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we hear stories from everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody, before we start the show, just wanted to say, uh, if you're enjoying it, please think about uh, hitting up the old Patreon and uh, helping the show continue on. Enough of that. I got to sit down with Tom from the marina, and he is absolutely phenomenal. Um I don't even know what to say. This was a great, great conversation that we got to sit down. A lot of wisdom, a lot of insight, and just somebody who has a huge amount, huge, huge amount of experience doing all sorts of work on boats and uh, just a really great guy. So hopefully you guys enjoy this one and um, yeah, we'll just kick right into it. Thanks for listening. Tom, it's so good to have you on the show, my friend. I've, I've wanted to do this one uh, especially because whenever I can have somebody who has a knowledge base and is, in my opinion, a master of certain aspects in the sailing world, it's always an honor because people are going to learn from this. You know, I, I've had packs on a couple of times, and the last one we did was uh, electricity, and he definitely has his uh, head in that game. Yeah, yeah. D- so. Did you talk to uh, talk to him about furnaces too? Uh, no, we didn't dive into that. But I, you know, right now with the podcast, it's sort of in this. Uh, I don't want to say flux, but mm-hmm. essentially, I'm trying to figure out exactly what direction I want to go because I think at the core, and I talked about this on the last show, but at the core and at the beginning, it's all sailing. But as I'm interviewing more and more people, I'm finding that. It's interesting to talk about all sorts of stuff. Remember that one kid uh, a couple years ago, Eli? He was on the dock down by you guys. Um, he was from Philadelphia, and he was a beekeeper. I do remember him. Yeah, yeah. 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 We yeah. we did the whole podcast about sailing, and then the last 10 minutes was about beekeeping. Yeah. And I was just totally enthralled. So yeah. all of a sudden, I'm sort of like, man, you know? I guess they don't all have to be about podcasting. Well, I, I think all about one, one of the things about sailing is part of it for me is seeing the world. Yeah. Part of seeing the world is seeing the people and meeting the people. Oh yeah. And I think of certain things in life as sieves, you know, with screens and what people get through and what people don't. Yeah. Um, That's and an interesting way to look at it. So if you're going to to, to be a sailor and sail on a boat, right away we know quite a bit about somebody. You know, we we know that they're adventurous. They're they're uh, they're more interested in adventure, going towards adventure than going towards comfort. Um, well, that's a hundred percent true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, some and, of these old clunkers. <laughs> yeah. But uh, and so, uh, living a sailing life is more interesting because of the people you meet, and uh, and you meet more interesting people. Not necessarily more interesting. You eat. You can meet interesting people anywhere you go. But yeah, you know, you can get some yahoos it, and everything. There's but. that. There's that sieve. You know where you know you're uh, you're more bound to meet people with an interesting story than you are interviewing gas station attendees well i i definitely can agree with that where 
especially like here at the marina, I mean, people are coming in off of the sea or off the intercoastal, and they're always going to have, you know, things that are happening to them that, yeah, normal everyday life, going to work eight hours a day, coming home, watching TV, doesn't really afford some of that really interesting stuff. I mean, I, I love getting people that have uh, first purchased their boat, you know, first time, like, changed their whole life up. Because usually those first couple of weeks, especially the first times they move the boat, yeah, are a catastrophe. And yeah. they're they're great lessons to learn from. Um, you know, that one guy, Aaron, he hit a bridge. Um the, <laughs> I'm trying to think of who else. And Aaron's a great guy. Like I, I still haven't had him on the podcast, but but before I before we just go completely off the rails here, um I guess I should introduce you. So, Tom, I mean, we, we you and I met uh, a few years back when I first got here. You were on a Freedom 35 or 32? 32. 32. And then you've now switched up to a Freedom... 38. 38, which I didn't get to see it down below, but I can only assume it's basically a way bigger boat because that's the way those go. A couple feet on the end makes a huge amount down below. Yeah, it, generally, uh, it's uh, the the rule in in boats is the uh, the size of the boat increases by the cube root of the length. And I've never heard that. So it's this is why I got you on here. This yeah, is yeah. I say say that again. The the size of the boat increases by the cube root of the length, and that's just. Because it, it it's three dimensional. Yeah, yeah. So it 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 becomes longer and taller and wider, and the amount of material it takes to make it, it increases by that formula. Yeah. You're measuring in three different directions. In fact, our boat is uh, is a prime example of that. My thirty two footer. Yeah. Um, is uh, weighed seven thousand six hundred pounds. Very light. Yeah, freedoms. Are Freedom makes them light. Well, light and fast. And uh, so this thirty-eight is six feet longer, but it is twice as big. It weighs uh, sixteen thousand eight hundred pounds. Holy cow! That's huge. Is that mostly in the keel or what? It's it's just. Uh, it's, it's it's everywhere, yeah, and and not only that freedom made the decision when they started making the thirty twos, and well, they were actually back then they were thirties and thirty sixes, and then they yeah. added a, uh, a swim step. Now they're thirty twos and thirty eights, or they were in the late eighties and nineties, and uh, to keep things simple. They essentially use the same scantlings. In other words, they they made them with the same hull thickness and deck thickness and uh, the same type of layups. So you didn't have people getting confused about it. It just made it more streamlined and the same shivs and and stuff. You know, just a bigger version. Yep, it's just it's just uh, a bigger version. In fact, we share furniture. Oh really? So yeah. the layouts are pretty much the same. I mean, well, well, you're you must have customized it quite a bit. Well, I didn't customize the layout. What I customized as working on this was systems, and in order to do that, I had to um, I had to you know customize things. Right. Um, you know, some cabinets are have a different purpose than they did before. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and that I'm sure they look a lot nicer as well. Well, we'll I, we'll I, get into wood towards the okay. end. Okay, I'm uh, I've got to pick your brain on a few things. On okay, that. 
But I, you know, I, I would consider you to be the type of person that, or the type of sailor that could come in and basically demo the complete interior of a boat and then replace it. Am I correct in assuming that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would never be able to do that. That's, that's, that is super impressive. And how long have you been sort of working on boats in that sort of fashion where well, you I felt sh- confident to do that? Well, the confidence came over time. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, I started uh, building boats. I got interested in building boats uh, when I was, uh, you know, just out of high school, actually. I, uh, so that would have been in uh, 75. I probably really got interested. Um, that's 1975. Oh, I got you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the year that Mighty Sparrow was, uh, was constructed. Oh yeah. So. Oh, I have an interesting story about them. The, uh, um, uh, West sales, but not that interesting. We can come back to it later. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, one of the first boats on woodwork on boat building I read was from a bear hall, Franck Matei. Oh, he, you told me about, you recommended that book, right? And yeah. And, uh, he was uh, uh, interested in sailing, and he was at the manufacturers, uh, a manufacturer in California of the West Sail. Yeah. And uh, he met a guy there, a salesman, that I knew on Whidbey Island. And the, I, I can't remember his name. He was an acquaintance. He worked at the lumberyard. And he said to Frank Matei, well, you're a writer. Why don't you buy a bear hull and finish it yourself and write about the experience. And he says, that's a great idea. That's what he did. Uh, and that was his first book? I don't think it was his first book. Oh, okay, he, he was okay. already a writer at that point. Yeah. But he did a great job. And uh, one of the great things about it is it's not a technical thesis on boat building. It's a story about a man who did it. And everything he learned and how he learned it. And so the knowledge comes much easier. You just absorb it you absorb as you it read the, the story. story of this man's adventure. And uh, he relays uh, uh, all kinds of information that he learned from the, you know, the yeah. boat builders he could find. And that was uh, very influential. Well, and that's I, I think that's one of the, the truly great things in, in sort of the sailing community as a whole. For the most part, you know, people, obviously people are going to try and give advice that is un, unsolicited and unwanted. But at the same time, there's a lot of wisdom that gets passed around for free you know, over cocktails at five o'clock at the clubhouse or just standing on the dock. I mean, it's, it really is truly amazing how the sharing of information, because we're all sort of working towards the same goal of not sinking and making our boats as, as nice as they possibly can be. So I've always thought that's kind of a cool thing. I think it adds to the community of, of sailors. Oh yeah, it it definitely does. And there's every skill level. Oh yeah. There are people that, uh, well, <laughs> this is an, an interesting thought and phrase that came up one day up in the shop. And a bunch of us are standing around talking about fixing problems in their boat that came via the previous owner. 
Oh, and, yeah. Um, I got a few of those. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, people buy boats and they do their best. And uh, one of the things that interested me early on in boats that I, I really liked was that everything matters. And if you don't understand that when you're working on a boat, your own boat for the first time, you don't understand what matters or why. And it's pretty easy to mess stuff up down the line. Yeah. So the thought or the phrase came up in this conversation was it's not the weather that destroys boats it's previous owners <laughs> <laughs> well i i do i i can agree with that because i the amount of stories that i've heard from people that buy a boat and and i've got a buddy of mine here who's got one and he he had said it was like the previous owner love to do about 80% of every project and then the last 20% he just got bored and sort of half-assed it and then you know in essence you almost have to strip it all back down and do it over again yeah it's it's tough that way it definitely is yeah it's um it uh, boats in this uh well in, in the last half of last century were kind of an, an anomaly in in that uh, fiberglass boats were invented. Yeah, and, it was and, a game changer. And, and they have to be made well. The worst case scenario has to be considered. If you're going to make a blue water boat, then it's got to take a beating. Yep. And uh, I don't think manufacturers understood that these boats were going to be around a long time. Long. A long, long time. time. Yeah. And so th there is a lot of old boats that just need somebody to go in and and redo them um you know there is pick them up for a dime and just put a thousand mm -hmm. dimes into it and yep. uh <laughs> hard labor and yep. elbow grease and it, it, it was they couldn't think about planned obsolescence they couldn't think oh we need to make this boat so it dissolves in right, 20 years right. you know it they fiberglass just lasts a long time. How, how many Pearsons do you think are out there? Yeah, like a million. Who knows? I don't oh know. Yeah, gosh. or Catalinas. You know, we know there's. I think they set the record for you know most. Oh, their production record or yeah, something. Yeah, the thirty, the thirty-two or thirty-six, something like that. There's the, the most of any boat ever, ever made. Thousands Maybe outside. I I always uh, with small boats. I think for a long time it was Hobie Cats, Hobie 16s, and then I'm pretty sure the Optimus, the little the little baby or tiny boat for little kids. I think that one because they you know it's just a bathtub. They just stamp it and there you go. But yeah, it is pretty incredible. How how many Freedoms are out there? Do you know? No, I I don't. Uh, the Freedoms are a, an unusual boat. They're, so they have a. Uh, it takes a. It, either a, a person with a real interest in something novel yeah or, or just an ignorant person that a salesman got a hold of you know that one doesn't have any wires <laughs> i like that yeah. wow yeah well <laughs> most people don't notice that the mast is just standing up there oh really yeah. people they they go to grab onto something no they not. just don't they just just like most people don't know how a toilet flushes they couldn't draw a bicycle right you know it's you just don't that's something it, they're looking it, for yeah it, it just the mast is up there and that's all we need to know well i think like very similar to a west sale almost every marina or area that i go to there's typically either a west sale or a very similar boat and then 
I'll see a freedom. It's because I, I always see it. I look for that and, you know, unstayed mast. And I mean, when I came here, you guys were on yours. When I go to Rockland, there's one up there. I want to say it's a 38, I believe. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but yeah, you know, they are there. I think, I think this one you could describe as a cult classic maybe. And I think a freedom mm. probably fits in that. It could. Um, it, I, I, I don't know. I've never been involved with the cult. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be the right terminology. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, uh, uh, isn't that what they call like movies that were sort of really not great, but they get this huge following? That's a cult classic, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm not sure that there's a huge following. Um, there is, uh, I, I, if there, they're still a pretty good deal. And if there was a real cult following, I think people would be snapping them up more. Yeah. But uh, I didn't come to it by chance. I didn't just see a boat that was for sale and said, oh, I like that. You know, you were I, looking for it. Yeah, I was looking for it. I, I was, you know, doing uh, dabbling in yacht design. And uh, I was uh, working in California away from home. I had mornings to myself, and I'd just sit out in uh, on a lounge chair drinking my coffee and sketching ideas. And I was thinking about how materials normally drive design. And are you talking like wood versus fiberglass? Versus sure. Versus steel, good good designers, right. D- good designers get a new material and they say, what can we do with this? Okay. And carbon fiber has been around. Well, the freedoms, my freedom was made in 93. My first one was made in uh, 86. And so the masts are old school carbon fiber. They're not. Uh, they weren't done um, under. Uh, they weren't vacuum bagged and and. Uh, oh, they were just like laid and, and up. done in autoclaves. Yeah, they were just laid up with carbon fiber and epoxy. Oh, okay, and, wow. And so even back then, they could make this unstayed mast. Well, unstayed masts have been around since you know the 1800s. Oh the, yeah, the yeah. hair shops had a had unstayed uh, masts that they put in some boats. But so I was I was thinking about really what could be done with carbon fiber masts and how what the future would look like. And I've asked this question of people in the industry and, you know, that worked at Freedom and why didn't things go further? And um, and the answer seemed to be from salespeople that there's just a a, uh, sailors are kind of conservative and they are not really interested in the next thing. They want tried and true. Try, they do yeah. not want to be experimented on. I can I can definitely agree with that in some points just because, you know, you never know even if you're just 100 miles off the coast of Hatteras, you might get absolutely slammed by 50-foot waves and just ridiculous conditions. And so you want to be as ready as possible, but I mean, freedoms are pretty beastly boats they can handle quite a bit because don't they just start like spilling the wind out of their sails because that that mass can just bend and bend and bend like a fishing pole almost right well yeah and you also you mentioned uh pearson's and uh 
uh, what's his name, Pearson, uh, I can't remember his first name, but he started making fiberglass sailboats to begin with. Yeah. Then he sold Pearson and he uh, signed a non-complete clause and uh, opened another business with a guy whose last name was Tillotson. So they started Tillotson Pearson and they couldn't build boats. And so instead they built fiberglass industrial stuff, tanks and pipes, and it turned out windmill blades, great, these great big oh. carbon fiber windmill blades. And in order to do that stuff, they had to have real labs. They had to uh, test every batch of resin that came in. They, they had guys with computers early on with stress gauges. They would build stuff and they would test it to failure. And when the compete clause was over, he could build boats again. And so Tillotson Pearson started building boats. They built uh, J-Boats and Aldens, and they built Freedoms. Freedom was another com- company at that point. Oh, okay. and, uh, and And a smattering of other boats. I don't know which ones they were. Then they decided to buy Freedom and make that their brand. And so when they started making uh, their line of Freedoms, they... They engineered them and then tested them to see where failure came from, where fiberglass needed to be added in the hulls, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Something that he had always wanted to do, building fiberglass boats, but a, a manufacturer building, uh, trying to keep the bottom line oh, yeah. low and make the best boat they can while competing with everybody else that's doing this, they they don't have the labs to do that. So uh, Freedoms were one of the first boats that were really engineered, had a, a, a very um, high, um, uh, what, high, high tolerances. And they, uh, so because of that, they are light and they're strong and they know they're strong. It's not that they, they speculate they're strong or they engineered, they, they put the mast up and put r- too big of rigging. Yeah, you know, they yeah. didn't do that. So that was something that interested me from the beginning. Uh, the other thing about the carbon fiber mast that's interesting to me is you have one thing that fails. It's just the mast. The mast breaks or it doesn't break. In a standard rigged sailboat with, uh, you know, with... Uh, standing rigging yeah every cable's got a uh, you know uh, a piece at the top and three pieces at the bottom any one of which fails means the whole rig fails right and um so that's an interesting thing another thing about them is i came i I did more windsurfing than i did uh sailing uh and windsurf rigs you know they're carbon fiber masts and the sails are square topped they're broad at the top yeah um the the masts are flexible uh gusts of wind are, are the sail is designed to spill gusts out so you yeah, don't get especially launched from the top yeah yeah it, and so i sort of like that um, I understood that already. It was something that I, I didn't look at the mast as uh, as a problem. But I've talked to um, uh, people in Rhode Island around where they were made that are very familiar with them that also had other interesting boats uh, and uh, about why they're not more prevalent. And one of the reasons is, I think, because racing designs drive 
production, uh, produ- yeah, production. People do, want yeah. what was what was developed by the racers, and racers need a, a very uh, a very rigid uh, jib stay, so that they're reaching yeah, so sails really hold their shape. Yeah, and if the mass is going to flex, them point upwind. Correct? Exactly yeah. that 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 helps them point upwind. And if the if the mass is going to flex, then it, then that's something that's difficult for them to control. Gotcha. But so. it's forgiving for general cruising and sailing. Yeah, and they're not slow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, with that weight ratio, geez, Louise, because you got a pretty tall mast. How? What? What sort of height do you get out of your? Off it's the deck? fifty-five feet. 55? Yeah, the sail to rate, the, the sail area to. Um, weight ratio is you know it's right up there you know i can't tell you what it is but well i've never been interested in racing sailboats i mean i did i did race sailboats but that hasn't been my uh that's not why i have a sailboat right exactly i like to race the seasons yeah like get to cape horn before winter sets in or at least i like to say i do (laughs) well uh, you know if you i did I, I, i came from windsurfing and if you're going to race something that has a sail, I, I think that's a good start, you know. Oh, and so I've never raced any of those. God, that must have. I, I could only think how that would be. Holy cow. Like planing out, just screaming along, but you're against a bunch of other people. Huh. Yeah, it, it's just play for me. I, I, I never um, uh, entered a race. Oh, you never did. Oh. No, windsurfing. I played on the on the on the waves. It's just going out and so playing fun. with your buddies. Yeah, 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 doing stuff. But you're going fast. Heck I mean, yeah. real fast. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I would go faster windsurfing than I used to go water skiing. You know, and we water skied in around 30, 35 miles an hour, and I, I'm not going that fast, faster than that very often. But we did. Yeah, yeah. You know? Wow. Hey, windsurfing uh, for a long time was the the top speed, you know, as they were approaching 50 knots. And then I think a kite surfer broke it. And then I don't know what they have now. I've sort of lost track. But I know I did read an article not too long ago that they're they're trying to close in on like 80 knots or something like that. I don't know what the record is now. They got some some really well, they, they fast got this stuff. One, it's like a pod, and it's it's strung in between some sort of foil that's in the water, and then a huge kite. And I'm a way out there with a little bit of weight on it or something. Oh, yeah, it doesn't yeah. even have that. It's it just, just it's basically just suspended. So once it starts going, only the foils in the in the wind, and it's all soft. So there, you know, there's always gonna be those people that are like, "Well, is that really sailing?" And it's of like, course, yeah. It is. If you're yeah. using the wind and you're in the water, <laughs> yeah. that's what sailing is. Yeah. There's always those that complain. Oh, oh, my favorite record was broken by someone who uh, who <laughs> yeah. had a better idea. Gosh darn it! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let me ask you one more question about the the freedoms. Um, so, unstayed mast, and I know you've told me you've sort of taken me through this again, but just just for the listeners, what is it? about the design of the freedom below the mast that makes it possible for that to actually happen and work and not fall apart. I think I think you described it one time to me as they they build the mast and this other thing and they build the boat around that. Well, I think I I know where you're going with this. So, the mast is stepped on the keel or on the hull. It's actually in front of the keel. The mast is quite a ways forward. Um uh, it's sort of a cat sloop, 
It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's not a cat boat. It's got a jib. Um, and the structure that holds the mast up is that the hull and the deck in that ring is, is quite strong. The rest of the boat doesn't have to be that strong. If compared to a boat that uh, has uh, rigging holding up the, the, the mast, yeah. the, the stresses are different. It's, if you think about it, uh, it's strung kind of like a, a, a bow, bow and arrow, where you, uh, the, the bow, uh, the arrow is the mast and the boat is a bow. And, oh. and so what, when the boat is stressed, the, the bow and the stern are, are lifted up as the mast plunges as down. As the mast pushes down. And what that tends to do in a, in a shape like a boat is, is to push the, uh, the hull outward in the middle. So the, the term they have for that is called oil canning. And under real stressful times, the uh, the deck is holding the the, the hull together from from spreading out in the middle. Ah. Uh, so the difference in a freedom is that the mast, the force that's pushing the boat forward, is is localized around the mast. And the stern of the boat is just going along for the ride. Yeah, it's okay. just being pulled along back there. You don't have to build that to withstand anything other than, uh, um, you know, floating. Right, right. And um, the of course, the, wave ru- the rudders up. back there, and there's stress on the rudders. Yeah. you've got all those twisting motions. But nothing and compared I, to the I, mass. I simplified it quite a bit, but um, yeah, it it, it uh, and they made them accordingly ah, the other thing is so that they're they're kind of beamy so that they've yeah, got how, how wide is yours it's uh 12 6 or so a little it's, bit it's more. wider than this one okay yeah and there's a they're, they're very spacious um uh for their size for their length yeah uh that's nice um, oh, always. Hey, you're talking to the king of space on a 32. Like I, I love having people come down here for the first time who've never been on a West sale. Yeah. They just poke their head down like, whoa, whoa, how in the, cause it just doesn't look like you can have this much room oh, when no. you walk up to this boat. I mean, you're like, oh yeah, it's a teeny little boat, but. Well, our 32 had a, a, a double, uh, uh, bed in the aft stateroom in the aft oh, cabin. Oh, nice! A thirty-two footer with a full double back there. Where's the engine? Yeah, Underneath the bunk? It was j- just right next to it. It was oh, wide enough, so. and it was worked out well enough so so that it were, it was right underneath the stairs. Yeah, the, yeah. The engine uh, compartment uh, w- was actually. Uh, uh, Used like uh, we use it as part of the galley. Yeah, oh, I bet. But people would come in and and sit down, and they, it, we sort of thought of it as like a clown car, (laughs) you know. (laughs) You have twelve people coming out of there. Yeah, there's just there's not enough room for that. But it was really quite comfortable, you know, much like the West Sail is. It's beamy. Yeah, and that's where your volume comes from. Well, it's where a lot of volume comes from. Oh, absolutely. And also, uh, the boat. 
architecturally, the living space being comfortable and having a settee on one side of the boat and a settee on the other side of the boat and people feeling like they can sit in these opposite settees and not be right face to face, have enough personal space. So you get that in a, in a wider boat, but there's in racing boats, people don't want that. Well, yeah. Cause that's a purpose built boat. I mean, I guess you could you could make an argument for um, the a Contessa thirty two. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those. Um, I only know it because I know uh, the author of uh, oh where is it? I don't know. It's over there. John Kretschmer. He he wrote Sailing a Serious Ocean at the Mercy of the Sea. Real real deal captain, heavy weather guy. Um, but he went around Cape Horn backwards in a Contessa thirty two. I believe, uh, but he he'll say it himself. He's like, this boat is one of the most sea kindly, but it's the worst down below. Like no headroom. There was a a girl who had one last year, I think, on your dock. Yes. And um, I went in there, and you can't you can't stand up or anything like that. No. I couldn't imagine in here. There's like six foot two, six foot three room uh, headspace and stuff. And yep. I don't know. For me, even when I'm out at sea. I still want a comfortable below deck. I want it to be like like a home because, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not going anywhere fast, so I might as well be comfortable while I do it. Well, there were a lot of myths about what made boats fast in the past. Yeah. And uh, and their designers have found ways around them. If you look at any boat that's serious about setting a monohull, setting a record, you know, sailing across an ocean they are v- nowadays they're very wide oh yeah yeah they're, they're getting a lot of their uh stability from their their mm-hmm. width you know that that well on a massive like 20 foot keel with a giant bulb of like depleted uranium <laughs> yeah ex- exactly but that thing although still- now it's all foils really Crazy. Well, that's true. That's uh, foils definitely have changed the game. I what I, I can't remember what America's Cup it was. Uh, maybe it was the BMW Oracle one where they had that monster trimaran. Um, yeah, maybe that was the first one where they really started using the foils like crazy. I could be wrong, but yeah, I mean, ever since then, it's been like if you want a boat, even the Vendee Globe boats, you know, the open sixties, they got foils, and it just gives them that extra couple of knots that add up over a 27,000 mile course. Oh yeah. Well, I was one of the things that thrilled me watching the America's Cup when they had the foiling boats was the chase boats, all the power boats. Oh, they have were, to upgrade. S- suddenly they couldn't keep up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> whoa, whoa. How fast are these sailboats going? It is it is pretty tremendous to see those those sort of speeds, but I for my for my viewing pleasure, I still if if someone's to say, hey, which which America's Cup would you want to watch? I I love going on YouTube and watching the the uh, battle in Fremantle back in the I think it was the eighties with like Dennis Connor because you're watching these twelve meter type boats, you're seeing sails blow out and have to be peeled and changed, and they're actually in the ocean swell and bashing through. I don't know, it's. When I, I, I don't know, when I watch one of those, I'm like the hair stand up. I'm like, oh no, oh, that guy just lost the cheat. And you can, you can tell it's a real battle because I think for me, it's just all about being able to relate to it. Yeah. All the other, the, the new modern boats are 
are so specialized that the yeah. average person uh, can't really uh, feel like they could duplicate that experience in any way. I have no idea what it would feel like to be on one of those boats. Yeah, it's no it, it's just it's a, just a completely different thing than a monohull, you know. And catamarans are have become uh, much more uh, popular things, you know. In in my lifetime, they were a weird thing. Yeah. And in my early days, they were things that, you know, guys were building in their garage. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you could buy kits or books. And then you started seeing them in the boat shows. And, uh, and now they're just a very popular way for people to live a luxury life cruising, sailing. Well, you know? we watched down working in the BVI for 10 years. You know, that's, that's basically one of the charter boat capitals of the world. And even just in the short time that I was there, we saw the complete transformation between monohull to catamaran. I mean, there's still tons of monohulls down there, but in the beginning, it was like maybe 50-50, and by the end, I mean, almost everybody was chartering cats because you can fit twice as many people comfortably. And, you know, when you pull up to a mooring buoy, which in the BVI, that's what you're doing, uh, you got all this space. If people aren't happy with each other, they got their own hauls. And you've got a big, it's essentially like a double cockpit boat. You got the forward cockpit, which is a trampoline, and then the aft one. So I don't know. They, I, I could see the benefits, but I can also see the drawbacks. Well, it's, it's just a bigger boat. Um, well, it, but the it, way they sail, and you know, we, I've been on them. We, we took uh, an old Lagoon forty three or something way long time ago, like two thousand five or something, and. Uh, Took it from South Africa to the Caribbean, a brand new boat. And it was cool when we were going downwind. When we had to go into the wind in actual seas, oh my gosh, I didn't feel right. It just did not feel right, you know, slapping and bouncing and, and doing the whole, instead of like healing over and going over the waves like that, it sort of does this up, downside, backside, like this box movement and i remember it throwing me for a loop i almost got seasick on that trip right yeah, out of uh right out of cape town you making know? you seasick got to be a chore well back then you know when i was new to all this stuff it there were there were two times i remember being feeling a little bit ill but uh yeah since since i've i've been on this boat i don't think i've ever had any issues unless the water's so old and bacteria ridden that it's making me throw up but well yeah that's yeah. a different challenge yeah that is a different seasickness yeah yeah well the catamaran thing is um uh is interesting i uh, because i've had people you know say well look at all the space on this this 40 foot boat and i'm like yeah it's got 80 feet of hull yeah yeah right like 80 feet of hull in a monohull that's that, that's a big that's boat too. A big boat, yeah, yeah. No, it is true. I I I don't know. There's there's definitely pros and cons. Obviously, I because of the type of sailing that I do, I definitely prefer having a monohull because I want something that if it flips over, it's gonna come right back up. And I think I found that with this this uh, this little vessel right here. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of different re reasons to choose a boat. It's one of the things that is very <coughs> interesting about boating and boats is the different the different options available. Oh, it's a million, absolutely million. 
Yeah, you can suit them right to to whatever you're looking for. Like if you were if you were going to just do intercoastal, never go offshore. What kind of boat would you get? Me personally? Yeah, money's not really an option. I mean, but you know, you're oh, a normal I would do a, person. I would use a powerboat, um, and it would Whoa. be. I know. I did not expect that, Tom. Well, you can't do much sailing <laughs> in the intercoastal. Well, that's true. That's true. Okay, so, so maybe maybe little hops, but never never any more than say ten miles offshore. Well, for me, I'm I'm very interested in an elegant solution, and that's kind of an undefined thing. But uh, one of the uh, one of the hallmarks of it would would be if efficiency, and. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of planing hulls. Uh, I I want a displacement hull that slips through the water easily. Yeah. Uh, even if I was uh, had a power boat, it it would not be a fast power boat going up the ICW. You can't go fast anyway. Yeah, but, there really isn't much need for it. So and a displacement hull, you're going to have more bang for your buck when it comes to. Uh, space and comfort and you don't have to worry about bridges um yeah true uh, and uh, if you're not going to sail a boat then why have the mast and the sails because they look so cool you're great for christmas tree lights <laughs> christmas you know that is true they always win the christmas tree we the christmas you know parade. we just yeah. got those power boats yeah. by the knuckles there yeah and I, I don't hate power boats i i like boats I don't uh, either. Yeah, they're they're it, interesting. I also think that uh, in the low country here, where there's so much boating opportunity, so many places to go, all these creeks and, oh, I know. and, and little yeah. islands, that uh, the, a power boat is perfect for that. Uh, you're not going to sail up in most of those. Um, yeah, that's sailing true. is is fine. I think of a sailboat. For me, a sailboat is for Traveling to distant shores, um, going to places that uh, it just doesn't make sense to burn the fuel. Uh, okay, well, then let's say you, you're going to do trips to, let's say you'll do trips down to Caribbean, stuff like that. No ocean crossing, but but big passages offshore. What type of boat would you be looking for? I'd have my boat. Yeah? Yeah. Nice. I, I like my boat. Good man. Uh, would you take I, yours across the Atlantic? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it could do it, right? Oh yes, of course. It's, and do it pretty fast, I'll bet. Yeah, I don't. You know, it's all. That's the thing that is very interesting. Um, it's a displacement hull. It has a hull speed. Uh, if you've got enough wind to reach hull speed, you're going your hull speed. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Then you, you know, just start. You talk about fast sailboats. You can't. The only way you go faster than hull speed is planing. Yeah, or so, surfing, but that's temporary. Very temporary. Yeah, and you can the the uh, if you want to do fast stuff, it just seems silly to me to to have a sailboat. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it seems it seems like you should you know change your mindset. Uh, getting places in a hurry is uh, is just I I don't know it's it's bad it's bad thinking if you're in a sailboat if you want to get in a place to places in a hurry get on an airplane. <laughs> Tom, I didn't realize you were this practical. <laughs> That's very unusual as a sailor. <laughs> uh, but I consider that the 
the journey, the fun. I do too. I, I definitely do. Uh, a lot of people sail around. They, they'll go outside. They might go inside uh, in a lot of places, but when they come, to, it comes to Georgia. They go outside, and I hear the people say, "Oh, it just winds around. It takes forever to get through Georgia." I'm like there is, it's like. National Geographic so all day, many every day. Cool places, yeah, yeah. There's only a few uh, uh, places where there's real civilization in the it's whole state. Pretty much Savannah, and then I don't know. Yeah, I, I've never been able to sort of cruise that, but I've heard about it. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's 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 gorgeous. Um, so uh, I love that about it. We have favorite anchorages in there. You know, there's a you know particular anchorage in the. Buttermilk Sound, where you get up in the morning and it's alligators everywhere. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, well, the right time of year. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and you know you see wildlife, you know, on the shores all the time. You know, fish are jumping. It's, oh uh, man, it's gorgeous. Um, and there's just not many people. Yeah. So. That's well, good. Uh, you know, I, I had heard something maybe a year or two ago, and they were considering changing some of the rules about where you could anchor in Georgia. Georgia does not like the idea of homeless people dropping an anchor in their boat and not paying taxes. Ah, okay. I don't gotcha. know if it's not, I don't know if it's the taxes. I don't know what it is, but uh, it, what drives them. I, I don't have time to worry about that kind of stuff. Right. But they have made laws that, that make it so that they can chase you out. I've never... Oh, uh, okay. So I, it's I, not like you can't go and anchor anywhere. It's like if you go and anchor for 17 months, they might have a problem with it. Well, I have never seen uh, a... Uh, a, a patrol boat. Oh, come and like kick people out or anything? No, if you're going to pass a law, you then have to find a way to enforce the law. Which costs money. It costs money. Yeah, and yeah. that's a whole state. You have to enforce this law across a whole state. And that takes a lot of people and a lot of boats. And uh, I don't really think that was their idea. They gotcha. made the law. And so now that they have the law... They can. It's I, yeah. It's probably. It sounds like to me after after hearing what you're saying that it's just something so that you know somebody owns a lake house and some idiot comes out and just parks right in front of it and stays there for months. They can be like, all right, this had enough of this. This guy could go anywhere else. Yeah, and that makes sense, I guess. Because there, you know, there is that old sort of feeling of like you know you can anchor your boat anywhere because it's the ocean, but. It's maritime law that goes back a long time. Yeah, yeah. And it's got precedent. It's hard to get rid of that stuff. But states, they do what they want to do. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. know. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it sounds like it's pretty much normal down there. You just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's just an example of uh, whatever we were talking about before. I forget what that this is. This is sort was. of a rambling podcast. People tell me they like it that way, just shooting from the hip. Just, that's what just, I always say. Just ramble. Well, you know, I, it's it, we just it, that's the great part about sailing. There's just just a million different things, and I I really enjoy. Um, and I I often forget to tell people this, but you know, 
even though I'm interviewing you, so to speak, it's more just a conversation and, and always feel free. You can ask me stuff about like my trips or anything like that. It doesn't really matter. Um, cause I, I, we're just, we're just here to talk shop, talk sale and talk anything really. You keep reminding me that there's going to be people listening to this. I thought we were just having a private yeah, conversation. Yeah, I know. Here. I'm just saving this for my <laughs> private files. Yeah. <laughs> I I actually have I have a file on here of podcasts that are either completely inappropriate to put out uh, or just didn't really work out at all. But I've kept them because I think, you know, they're kind of interesting. Maybe I'll do a bloopers reel when I get to like a thousand episodes. Oh, that if, would, if that I would, do. That would be good. Yeah. yeah you could fun. have worst moments, best moments. Well, I, let me ask you, because you, you are exceedingly knowledgeable about boats in general. With the West Sail 32, uh, they came in kit boats where you could build the interior all yourself or they came fully put together. I believe this one was fully put together, but then it was customized by it's, it's only had, I'm the third owner of this boat. Um, so they changed some of like the nav station and all that sort of stuff. Not much though. Cause this, this thing here is all standard. The settee is standard, the bunk up forward. That's all standard. Um, if you had your choice, I, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this. Which one would you have bought? The pre-build or the do-it-yourself? Well, at this point in my life, I, I would I would buy the one that takes the least amount of work. Oh, so, well, he's gotten wise in his old age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not the, that you're old. <laughs> the, the, our, our most valuable asset is time. And wise words, people. If, if you've got the time to do that, you're young and uh, you really don't know how long it takes to build things. Yeah. Um, then it it could seem like a good idea to buy a boat project if that's what you're wanting. Yeah, but the, one of the, there's several things that I've learned over the years of both uh, building things for myself and. Uh, helping people through their own projects. Yeah, and which you've well, done for me plenty of times already. Yeah, but this is you're you're just this is just a baby project that I helped you through. <laughs> it's a baby project <laughs> to you. Yeah, that's like when I describe like, oh, I'm just gonna go across the Atlantic. Like it's just a baby sale. Yeah, yeah. just a little anybody sale. else yeah. is like, what? <laughs> well, <laughs> this is a it, if I could pass on a, a piece of wisdom to the most people Please possible. Do. It's to understand that every project has a lifespan, and that that lifespan will have a lot to do with with the project and combined with the bank account and the personality of the person doing the project. Yeah. But at some point, that project will will become a chore, and the longer it's a chore, the bigger the chore it becomes. Oh, yeah. So let's say that you can stay enthusiastic about a project for six months. You better have that project done in six months or it's going to be a prison. And the quality of work is probably, not always, but probably going to start to take a dive. That's not a constant. Uh, some people cannot... Yeah, cannot, some people can push through. Well, some people cannot allow the project to be 
poor. They can't yeah, do they bad work. They will not. They will not do that. They would. They would rather get divorced <laughs> or that, hire out the work. <laughs> yeah, and, and so a, a boat project is is a difficult project. It's uh, far more than ten times harder than building a house. Uh, the um, ooh, a lot of construction workers out there probably getting pretty heated right now tom well i I, this guy's talking what (laughs) well i started building (laughs) boats and uh and then eventually i i moved to cabinets you know i got an offer to come run a cabinet shop oh that's right yeah and and then from there i moved into construction and i kind of look at boat building as sort of a vanity career a vanity job in that it's 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 very romantic. You get to do incredibly good woodworking, uh, woodworking that that you can't do in a if you're building nice boats. Yeah, you can't do in other places. The skills that you need to to uh, make every joint a well, compound that, that angle. precision. Yeah, and so uh, there are, are amazingly a lot of really good craftsmen that want to do it, and so it doesn't. Uh, pay a lot now maybe that's also because anybody that has a job can get a loan for a quarter million dollars for a house yeah there's a lot of money out there for houses but i eventually got to the point where i realized if i was ever going to have a boat i had to make money yeah and so i moved into construction and uh you know i use my skills in a different way i always i i found that i could I was the happiest and made the most money doing uh, construction jobs that were that, that had uh, that required something extra. You yeah, know, yeah. Um, Just they, they were weird houses. Yeah, or spiral staircases, or you know. Uh, a lot of times it's just a remodel where the design was going to change every day. That that kind of thing. Okay, but. Um, but we're back to uh, how much energy a person has to put into a project. And there are so many hulls in backyards <laughs> yeah, that, are. That, that were never finished and by people that meant well. And, uh, and really what we're seeing when in our minds when we start building that boat project is we see ourselves sitting on a white sandy beach under a palm tree drinking a Mai Tai. Yeah, not doing the project. Yeah. Enjoying the We don't see ourselves pouring a lead keel in a junkyard. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Well, you know, on that subject, one of the problems that I run into when I... So, obviously, with, with sort of the trips that I do and I've attempted... I have to get this boat into a certain level of readiness, you know, with with things like varnish and and wood and and stainless and all this sort of stuff. And because I've done it so many times now, one of the issues I come to is like, how many times am I going to strip and sand and varnish this stupid cap rail uh, to seal it up so that it can withstand nine months out at sea? And I, I don't know, do you, do you have anything that you do to sort of push you through that sort of issue of, of not, not monotony just from a job, but doing the same thing, having to do the same tedious project over and over again? 
Well, yeah, I mean, this this is this always gets to a person's personality. Yeah, and and uh, I get fed up, I, but I do it. But I get fed up. Yeah, <laughs> and and I I think the romance of making stuff left the building for me a, a long time ago. Yeah, I like nice stuff, and I like stuff that works well, and that's my driver. Making it, making myself do it, is is a little tough nowadays. I I I do not really uh, get into the groove when I'm making stuff like anymore. Like you used to, yeah. Yeah, there are certain types of things that uh, that I can I, I can uh, just uh, really enjoy, but th- that tends to be when something has to be sculpted. And sculpting it loses precision. It's it, you're just making it look good to your eye. Yeah. But constant precision, constant precision, um, and constantly not making a mistake, thinking that far ahead. And people think that making things for me is really easy. They watch me do it and they go, "Wow, look at that! Look at that!" But yeah, uh, uh, no, I, I I I have set high tolerances for myself and I know what good work is. I know the difference. And I, um, I'm one of those guys who has a very difficult time lowering my standards to get something done fast. So I mentioned that a, a little while ago, but it's not always easy. It's get up and grind and get up and grind and go to work. Just like anything they someone told me when i was young oh yeah if you want to enjoy yourself find something you love to do and make that your career and what i would say be careful of that because if you if if what you really love becomes uh your career it could you can lose the romance you could lose the romance you can yeah. burn right out yeah. yeah well and you know honestly for me it's it's sort of bittersweet that you're taking off on friday because Obviously, you're a wealth of knowledge, and and I'm just at that point with that with the bowsprit where I've got to start, you know, epoxies and varnish, all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it's kind of nice that you'll be gone because I'm sure you would probably come in, and I can just picture you sort of shaking your head like, hmm, because I and I I want to promise you I'm going to try to make this bowsprit and the rails and everything look absolutely gorgeous. But it is one of those things when you know there's a master around, you're sort of like, ooh. But I, you know, I'll, I'll definitely be sending you pictures of it. Well, I, I out of focus ones, dim lighting, it'll be great. I, <laughs> I got done with being critical of other people's work a long time ago because it's everywhere. And if that's true, uh, if I notice something very fine, I don't care if I'm walking down the street and I see a pair of shoes in a showroom window that's a, an incredible piece of craftsmanship, I'll stop and admire it. Yeah. But I'm not going to walk down the street and criticize everyone's shoes on their feet. That's very you know, good of you, sir. I, I, a couple of very good friends brought me to a very nice restaurant one time that and the interior was to them just the greatest thing ever and it had a big waterfall and it had huge beams in it and we and they were they didn't tell me that they were bringing me to, there to see the expression on my face when we oh, walked really? in and we sat down and we had a fine conversation and we talked about the usual things and uh, the wine came and we sipped the wine 
And uh, one of them said, well, Tom, what do you think I'm like, about what? What do you think about the place? I said, well, it's nice. They go, yeah, but I mean, this is pretty awesome. Like, look at those huge beams. Look at the wood. Look and at I'm, the wood, Tom. I, and I'm like, uh, well, those aren't huge beams. They're like, what do you mean they're not huge beams? I'm like, well, that's a, just a, a wrap. It's it's an artificial Oh, no, covering. You're, you're dashing people's dreams. Yeah, so I sat there. <laughs> then I had to explain to them how this place was made and how it was, it's kind of Disneyland. It's made to look great, oh, but, it, no. but it wasn't. And, and so I had to, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and but but that led to an interesting conversation where we talked about what yeah you know, what goes about that those. that aspect of, of things and how you go through life and, in, and enjoy things and if you make fine things um it it could really be uh it could drive you crazy if if you if you had to demand that everything you saw was perfect perfect you right, know right so Oh man, that that's so funny! <laughs> All right, well, believe it or not, we're already at an hour, and I I desperately don't want Nancy to get mad at me because I know I'm sure there's things cooking up down there. Because Tom, you're taking off Friday, correct? Correct for Charleston. First stop, Charleston. Okay, we'll get excellent. some done, some stuff done in Charleston, and then we'll head south. And how far south are you going? Uh, well. Uh, something that we do not like to do is is have a calendar. I love nice. Uh, I like that. I love the the saying that the most dangerous thing on a sailboat is a calendar. I think that's very uh, true. Yeah. Um. Uh. And we are we tend to go in a direction, and uh and that direction is where the adventure will happen. Every time we have had an absolute place to go, uh, we have missed half the stuff along the way. Right, and yeah, you're just, focused on the end. And like you said, it's about the journey. We, The things that have happened to us that were unexpected, and, and also conceptually, it is uh, it just doesn't make sense. If... We've not been there before. We've not been between here, point A and point B. Yeah. We have an idea in our mind that we want to get to point B, but we don't really know what's in between. How can we decide what to miss and what to see? Right. We don't know what's there. It's true. A and uh, the, the most interesting thing could not have been on your schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 100% true. I Case in point, I remember... Um, well, I guess uh, the biggest would be uh, on the trip around the world, south of New Zealand, just passing, you know, I was probably like 40 miles south or maybe less of Stewart Island and get hit with easterlies. So straight, right on the nose, not going to make any headway. And lo and behold, you know, 30 miles south of me is the snares, just rocky outcrop, uninhabited, just prehistoric looking islands. And boom hang a right and I head down there for the day and just cruise back and forth. And that was the first land that I had seen three or four months. And, uh, still to this day, I mean, it's the background on my desktop. Uh, it's, it really is an image that will stay with me until the rest of my life for sure. And, you know, it was completely unplanned. Have no idea. I mean, I, I knew I always wanted to see it, but it was, it was like you said, it's just something that came up. You never know. That journey, and had I been ultra focused on getting back, 
I would have probably just been beating hard into the wind and trying to tack and da 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 and just pass right by. So interesting. Yeah, we we started out with the idea. We had a general plan that we were. Uh, without getting into details, we, we were going to head south from yeah. Boston, where we bought our boat. We knew nothing about the East Coast. Uh, we just uh, had the idea. That we, we were looking for a boat. The idea was we'd find the boat, and the adventure would start there. And uh, that made everything all the more exciting, because everything was new to us out here. Uh, from the the West Coast, the Seattle area is part of the the newest parts of uh, this country. And something old in the Seattle area is, you know, 1920. Yeah, so, right, right. You know, that's really old in, in the Seattle get area. Get to the East Coast. Yeah, you get to the East Coast. Tack on 200 more years. Yeah. And uh, so we were just ready to head south, and friends said, we're going to Gloucester for 4th of July. Why don't you guys tag along? A group of us went up there in different sailboats, and, and it was really fun seeing Gloucester and the the schooner races and that wasn't on the plan and then the guy one of the couples said you know we've got two weeks vacation we're gonna head further north and, and head up to maine why don't you tag along so we tagged along their two weeks were up and they turned around and went back we didn't leave till september <laughs> <laughs> nice yeah it was late september actually when we finally came back none of that was planned and if we had not done that i just you know, I absolutely know that that we would have missed just a tremendous amount of stuff. Oh my gosh! Yeah, are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh. So it it being able to to not plan, having a lifestyle that you've designed on purpose so that you can have the luxury of not planning. Yeah. And then making a big plan. I don't know. That seems counterproductive. I could, yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely agree with that. I mean, definitely some people will want to have sort of that goal of, okay, I've always wanted to sail the Caribbean, let's get there. But, yeah, there's certain people that will just go and they'll they'll sail offshore, point A, point B. And then, yeah, I, I do, as I'm getting older and more used to the sailing that I do, I'm starting to sort of be like, boy, any more sailing I want to be able to see all these little places that normally I pass a few hundred miles away from. Well, you did a special thing. No, oh, for sure. And that that was a goal and everything like that. And, but I, I sort of knew that after the fact, I was probably still going to have the boat and be able to, to get out there. But I mean, you know, to go and attempt a couple more big trips that were going to be solo nonstops. Um, yeah, I don't know. I when I think about it now, if I ever plan a big trip, it's going to be the milk run around the world, west coast of the US, South Pacific. I mean, talking a 3-4 year trip with other people. I mean, complete complete opposite of what I normally do. Um but yeah, yeah there there's places that I would really like to go. I'd like to spend uh as much time as I could between Australia and Indonesia, that whole area oh, there. Oh, yeah, right. The, um, and we may end up there someday. And in general, we're we're going to take the adventures that are close by and work our way further out. Um, I'm not going to skip cool stuff to go someplace far away. 
right at this point in my life. Right. Uh, you know, I, I I can calculate how many years I've got left. You know, by how long my you oh, know, right. you had a crystal ball. <laughs> well, I mean, max years. You yeah. Know? Right. Max and, good years. Yeah. Right, max right. good years, and you know, we're all living longer. I, I mean, that is something that uh, it it broadsided me a long time ago. I remember being about thirty five, and I mean, fit as a fiddle. And thinking that if I did not get on the boat, get on a boat and start cruising, by the time I was 40, by the time 45 came, that I wouldn't be able to do it. Oh, really? Well, uh, you know, when in 1914, excuse me, is that right? Yeah, in, in 1914, right, this is a stat. The life expectancy of a male in the United States was 45. What? Really? Yeah. Holy cow. Now, I mean, there's been some bad wars that, you well, know, that yeah. lowered that, that you and know, that factory jobs and. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and, okay. and then I had two grandfathers that died in their early 50s. So mm. they're dead. Although my great grandfather on my mother's side fought in the Civil War. So there were some long living people in that. Oh line. yeah, okay. Just so that's my got, just my great grandfather. You, you know, mix, my yeah. kids, you know, knew my grandmother up to the time you know they were thirteen or fourteen. So her dad fought in the Civil War. So there's some long living people there oh, on that okay. side. Yeah. But um, uh, by the time I got to be forty five, I uh, I remembered that thought I had. It was a it was an epiphany, you know. And I was like, what in the world Jeez. was I thinking, yeah, right. you know? At, huh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was playing an awful lot of soccer back then. And I quit playing soccer just because we went cruising at 57. Oh, and, wow. Okay. And so you're taking care of yourself. Uh, no, actually. The ex well, well, having kind of. exercise and stuff. Kind of. My hack is not, is to play hard. So, like, I cannot stay, get on a treadmill. Uh, you know, if I had to stay in shape by going to the gym and running on the treadmill, I probably would have had a heart attack. <laughs> but yeah, I don't see you running uh, to the bridge and back every morning like I do. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my hack is if I'm playing soccer and there's a ball in front of me, I'll run into my heart pops. Right, right. You know, but uh, if I'm, you know, if I'm running, and a hill comes along. I'm like, oh my god, this is so Stick my boring. Thumb out, catch a ride. Yeah, here, buddy. I just you know <laughs> just forcing myself to work. But if I'm playing, you know, windsurfing, uh, playing soccer, and you can't play just on one team because no, that's no. one time a week. You know, so you got to play on like two or three teams and staying active like that definitely is. I, I don't know that it's there's a huge, any other huge way. part of life. Absolutely, yeah. That's absolutely, that. and uh, it keeps your mind sharp. It keeps everything sharp. But yeah. yeah, just moving. It's it's the just sitting on the couch doing nothing that will absolutely kill you so fast. Well, we we know two things. There's, it's it's hard to know a lot about our f physiology. You know, there's all kinds of myths, and every time you click on YouTube, do oh, this one new, simple yeah. trick, you know. But we know two things. One, if we sit around, if, if we don't use part of our body, it atrophies. Our body wants to be efficient. If uh, you break your arm and it's in a cast for six weeks, you get that 
arm out of the cast and it's you like can't, a limp noodle. You can't even uh, lift it up. Right. Your arm has gone away. Your body's like, well, we don't need that. Yeah. You're not going to use it. We were shriveling it until it fell off. Yeah, <laughs> and that'll happen. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you do use it, your your body responds. Look at weightlifters. Is it's there true. anything else you can do that, that, that I mean, leaving out the steroids, right. but uh, that you can do that immediately your your body responds to. It's like, uh, oh, you want to use that arm? Great. We'll make it stronger for you. Yeah. So yeah, it, sure. that's the easiest thing we can do is is just move. Just move. Anyway. I couldn't agree more. No, that's, that's, that's sort of how I've tried to live most of my life. And I know I've definitely slowed down. I always slow down after a voyage or after an adventure there's oh, yeah. always a period where i go through this like depression and i've talked about it before on the podcast and stuff this one was particularly hard just because uh when you attempt one of these things and you fail and i know most times when i say that people are like well you didn't really fail you still had this adventure and i did but you know i didn't succeed in my goal um it sort of amplifies that that depression sort of state yeah but i it it goes because it's one of those things where these trips I have to sort of uh, gain a bunch of weight to go. I always like to have a nice pad of fat on me in case I run out of food again. You know, learn that lesson the hard way. And so when I come back, like I'm, I'm, I'm starting out way below where I normally am. So it's always a fight to get back. But eventually, and and I think I finally at this point, like I'm, I've snapped out of it. So I'm, I'm getting back to that motivated state. But it, it encompasses like my whole life, like my brain, my body, uh, the work I'm doing, the creativity stuff, and I don't know. It's it's pretty crazy. Well, you've used your uh, your sailing life as as a different sort of thing than I have, and I think this is another thing about boating. It, it, of course, we're all stuck with the with the brain we've got, the head we've got, yeah, and uh, that's been. Uh, it's, it's been, I think, more important for me than the average person. Um, uh, my quest, my my life has been about learning how to use that thing. Um, it, um, it comes without instructions, and uh, yeah. um, and uh, nobody else knows how to run it, and no one else can tell you how to do it. But and everybody's um, is different. Everybody's is different, and uh, you know, for me. Uh, uh, Sailing was and in boats is about changing a lifestyle, and uh, um, I don't. It, it, there's lots and lots of aspects of myself that uh, that go into the choices I've made and what I want to do, and and the, you know the boat choices I've made the uh, the incredible amount of time I've spent on boats not going to beaches and drinking Mai Tais, yeah. you know, and uh, so you, on the other hand, it seems like uh, you've jumped right in, and uh, and uh, I'm going to, I guess, tested yourself in, in ways that, in, in, in ways that I haven't, you know. Um, yeah, right. Well, it's all, yeah. I mean, like everybody's path through sort of the world of, of boats and yachting and yep. and that sort of adventure, they're all adventures, no matter how small or grand they might be. But yeah, that I think that's one of the cool things too, because 
everybody can share their own experiences because nobody's doing the exact even if you even if you take off and and cruise across the Atlantic on the uh, on the Ark and there's a hundred other boats, everybody's having a different trip. Oh, absolutely. So there's just I don't know. That's I think that's one of the great things. Like uh, you know, we're all on boats, but everybody's having their own adventure, and then we share it with each other, and we get to learn from them. We get to laugh a lot from them, uh, and you know that's that's I don't know. That's I think what makes this community so so special. One of the big concepts that I, I think is, was important for me is um, about changing to boats is uh, I lived on Whidbey Island before. It's a beautiful place. We had uh, a piece of waterfront property. Where, where is that? Whidbey Island is in Washington State in oh, Puget okay. Sound. It's north of Seattle. Gotcha. Um, and uh, there was, you know, we had boats in our backyard. So the, the boating was was possible um we didn't do a lot of it you know but raising kids in a in a beautiful community playing a lot of soccer and there is not a thing that i could complain about in my life it was by all standards a great life but it was the same week essentially over and over oh, I pl- like I, groundhog's I, day i yeah. played on on soccer teams and so that meant meant i got out i saw my friends we'd we'd play an evening game we'd go to the pub we'd have a few beers we'd talk i did that on a regular basis when we went to play games we would go to the mainland we would get on a ferry boat and you know ride across puget sound we we could see gorgeous mountains and uh they're not a thing that I could complain about, but I did the same thing the same week over and over and over it again. It starts to grind a little bit. Yeah. And it and loses my, its sparkle. Yeah. It, well, it, my mind uh, likes change. It yeah. likes adventure. That was not an adventure anymore. It, uh, when we first moved there, it was an adventure. And every time I saw them, something, it was special. But it's a big world and a short life. I couldn't agree more. And, yeah, uh, I I just feel like uh, you know I don't know the 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 analogy that just popped in my head. I'm going to use it. It's probably going to be stupid, but if you just you know you make soup and all you do is throw in rice, you know it, it, it sure it'll sustain you, but it's not good until you've thrown in 50 things, you know, you need a lot of stuff in it, you know, and, and they're out there. Yeah. yeah. And the, the more well you it. see, you know, it's one thing to know that, that, uh, sea turtles exist, but it's another thing to see them laying eggs on the beach at, at two o'clock in the morning yeah, right. on hunting Island. And, uh, you know, it's a, something that we would never have been able to do. Uh, you know, we just absolutely lucked out by the time we went out at night to see them, uh, ran into a uh, National Geographic type film crew that invited us to come oh, along. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. And they had the infrared lights and the professionals, you know, knew how to do it without disturbing them at all. And, you know, who can plan that? Right, you know? right. And you, even if you decided to buy that tour, you know, you still, it's not going to be the same. No, not no, at all. it just, yeah, it just happens. So that's, that's what happens when you travel around on a boat and go new places and meet new people. Those are some great words, Tom. And I, I think that's where we should sort of end our, our, our podcast here. Although I do have, I do have one question and it's a, 
practical boater question for a master of wood and all that sort of stuff. Uh, if I am to clean and maintain the interior varnished wood, what would you use to do that? But to clean the already varnished wood. Yeah, if I just want to clean this, keep it, you know, uh, keep it sort of looking nice. You know, there's a million different products. There's vinegar. There's all sorts. What, I'm, what I'm proud use? to say I don't have an answer for this. Really? <laughs> yeah. I should yeah. ask Nancy that. Yeah, you should ask Nancy. I'll bet yeah. you. I wonder if it's vinegar. Does your Does your boat ever smell like pickles? Uh, when we've had pickles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe it's not no. Uh, it's it's interesting. I I um, uh, I think a lot about wood and boats and. Uh, the the wood that we use in boats is very rare and special, and I was talking to a guy the other day uh, and uh, about wood and wood boats, and I I think the time is is over. Uh, I really I, yeah I don't I I I like wood, but I like trees better than I like wood. Whoa okay I like trees. But I like forests better than I like trees. And I like a, a, a healthy ecosystem better than I like a forest. And you, when there's, you know, 8 billion people on the planet, we can't all chop down a teak tree so that we have shiny stuff to look at That's for three years until we sell the boat to someone who doesn't care. You know, so, you know, I do have an older boat. And a recycled boat. It is a recycled boat. I bought boat. a recycled boat. I was disappointed when uh, I first looked at my boat that the interior was cherry and not teak. Oh, really? And, uh, you know, I'm because t- I had a store of teak, you know, oh, I, I right, had just right. tons of teak. <laughs> I didn't have a, I didn't have a pile of cherry. <laughs> you start replacing it piece by yeah, piece. No, by I, piece. I, I, I bought cherry and I didn't buy much cherry. It's amazing how I talked to people and they said, Oh, I got some yeah. cherry. Oh, yeah. Oh, my dad used to love cherry. Adam's dad, our canvas maker here in the, in the, Marina, his dad was a cabinet maker, and his favorite wood was cherry. And it's a wood that's uh, you know that's available here on the East Coast. And yeah, so yeah. he had piles of cherry. He, and uh, he went back to the family home, and and he got me the stuff that had been curing in the in the in the shop for twenty years. Oh, really? Yeah, so that's gorgeous not stuff. I didn't. Warp yeah, or anything, I didn't have yeah. to buy. Uh, I did not yeah. buy any cherry. But anyway, it's it's just a thought. You know, no, I, I think people are go overboard on on the romance a little right, bit. Right. You know, and um, so anyway, I'm, uh, it, that's uh, something that I think people don't expect me to say. Yeah, no, I definitely didn't. You've been an enigma wrapped in a puzzle, wrapped in a mystery. <laughs> I don't know how that that quote goes, but it's something like that, Tom. Uh, this has been absolutely wonderful. I, I can't thank you enough for taking your time. I know you're busy because I know what it's like to be pre-departure. Even days out, it's sort of like, you want me to do what? Um, but I really appreciate you sitting me down. And I'm sure our paths are going to cross in the future. And definitely, we could probably sit down and do like a three-hour podcast because this this feels like we've been sitting here for 10 minutes. Well, it's, it was really fun for me. So uh, uh, anytime... I appreciate that, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Perfect. Not 